So we use this phrase in English. We say you got stuck in a pickle, right? You guys ever use that phrase before? It's probably referencing, you know, being on a baseball diamond and you're stuck between two different ways. You don't know what you're going to do. And I think of, of some of the pickles that I've been in my life. Uh, there have been a few experiences that I've had when the police officer knocks on my door and says, do you have any idea why I pulled you over? And I'm thinking, I can think of about 80 of them, you know? Uh, th- those times when you found yourself a little bit in deeper than what you have a natural solution for. What, one stands out at me. This story is kind of terrible, but I'm going to tell it to you anyways. Uh, my, my sister-in-law was a school teacher, a math teacher, and a, a young lady came into her classroom in tears because her brand new birthday gift iPhone was lost. And so uh, they searched all over. The last time she'd seen it was in the restroom, in the, the ladies' restroom. And so uh, later on, I guess she remembered that on some iPhones, there's that device thing that you can hit, find my iPhone. So she hit it and, and it actually showed an address that was in the area. And uh, she went to the principal the next day at the school, hoping maybe another classmate had found it or confused the phone. And they ended up uh, recognizing the address, they sent police officers over to the house to see if they could retrieve this young lady's brand new iPhone. And when that person, who happened to be a janitor at the school, had collected that phone, I think he might have thought he was going to sell it or whatever. We don't know what the story was. But, but in the pickle that he found himself in, he decided that the right thing to do was to put her phone in the blender. And so, uh, so basically, when the police left that day, the guy by the, at the end of the day got his pink slip, right? Uh, but when the police left that day, they had a baggie full of cell phone parts. Pretty terrible, right? I, I want you to think about times in your life when you found yourself in a pickle and your solution fell far short of the circumstances. In this guy's case, obviously, it was an act of desperation. Today, we're going to wrestle with what it means for us to be people that are in a broken world, but that have access to the solution, the greatest problems, the, 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 the solution to the struggles that are all around us. And as Christ followers, the thing that's so incredible about the gift of the gospel that the Lord's given us is that there are many in the world that we live in today that look at it and they use one word to describe it. That's foolish. It's silly. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't add up. How can you put your faith in a God? I just said it a few minutes ago. How can you trust a God that's dead? How can you place your faith in, in someone? And in reality, what they don't understand are the powerful, mighty truths of the gospel. And so when we talk about these things in the church, what, what ends up happening for some people is that they've heard glimpses. Maybe you were this way before you accepted Christ, that they've heard glimpses of the truth, but instead of receiving the truth, what they want to do is to find an excuse for why not to accept it. Boy, we're good at excuses, aren't we? In the garden, Adam and Eve, you remember the story. She blamed the snake, he blamed the girl. There's always somebody else to blame for our circumstances, right? That there's, there's a way for us to rationalize our behavior. And then when it comes to being held accountable for the decisions that we make, ultimately, the truth is we just want it our way, Right? We want to have circumstances go our way. And, and what I believe happens in the world that you and I live in, especially today, is that people, like they did thousands of years ago, want to remove God from the equation. They want to do life their own way. They want to have it their way. And, 
And I think what happened in the early church is the Apostle Paul is writing to a group of believers that he loved. They, they had spent time together, 18 months together. He knew them by name. He loved this church. They had received the gospel. He's writing the message to people who are, were professing Christ followers. And he noticed something that I'm afraid is a temptation for some of us in the room today. It's a temptation for me is that he noticed that there were people outside of the church that considered the message of the gospel foolish. That, that it was silly. No one in their right mind could believe this. This is not something that anyone should receive. And what they were choosing to do is they were choosing to hide their faith in such a way that they would kind of do the path of least resistance. As long as I keep it to myself, keep it private, and what the Apostle Paul is going to say to them is, the gospel, for those who have yet to receive it, it is totally foolish. It doesn't make a lot of sense. It's, it's, it's not an A plus B equals C kind of thing. But, but that doesn't stop us from being willing to be the kind of salt and light that God's called for us to be in a dark world. It doesn't stop us from being willing to express the truth of God's love for people who desperately need it. And so the world's way of thinking tries to remove God from the equation. But when it comes to life and death and eternity, what we recognize is God's provided us the way of hope. The, the message of the gospel is great news. Are you guys alive out there? It's great news, right? But, but God knows people so well. And the apostle Paul watched this. And, and the people that were there in that culture, whether they were Jewish individuals, whether they're Gentiles, Greeks, that they're listening to the message of the gospel and they're saying, I, I can't believe that. I, I can't do that. that. That doesn't make sense. It doesn't add up. And then what Christ followers were doing, and I think this breaks the heart of the Apostle Paul. And we're going to see this in the tone this morning is he's going to see Christ followers abdicate the privilege that they have to express the loving kindness of the Lord Jesus Christ because they're embarrassed by it. And in verse 18, if you turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 18, the Apostle Paul is going to spur them on, and I think he's going to spur you and I on, to be people who understand that the message of the gospel is incredibly relevant, even when people don't realize how powerful and relevant it is. Verse 18, it says this, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. It's foolish to those who have yet to receive the gospel, but to us who are being saved. It is the dunamis, the power of God. In the declaration of this truth, the apostle Paul, I almost get the sense he's worshiping and he says it, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning, I will thwart. Here, the apostle Paul quotes a passage of scripture that's beautiful, it is Isaiah chapter 29. And, and, and when we look at this passage in Isaiah 29 in its context, we see God's view of people who would choose to reject his mighty hand. I want you to see this, it's powerful. So in the verses after Isaiah 29, 14, we see this in 15 and 16, it says, ah, you who hide deep from the Lord your counsel, almost mocking, whose, whose deeds are in the dark and who say, who sees us, who knows us? You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay that the thing made should it say of his maker, we, you did not make me, or the thing formed say of him who formed it, he has no understanding. Do you see what he's talking about? He's talking about an artisan 
That, that it's, like, it's like looking at this beautiful created vase that was, 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 was put together by the hands of a good artisan that afterwards they look at it and they assume that there was no one involved in creating it, that they neglected the fact that there was a designer and a creator. Let me just tell you that God's word in Romans 1 tells us that, that all around us we see attributes of God's created order in the world that's around us, that, that he knit this thing together, that he's creative. It's sustained by the mighty hand of God. And in Romans 1, we are encouraged by the fact that we can see it all around us. We see his handiwork, right? And as people who've been designed and created by that God, you know what's interesting to me is that he says to us, it's possible for us, like that work of art, to act like there was nobody who ever created it, that it wasn't designed. It wasn't, wasn't, it doesn't have a signature at the bottom that says like what you and I can do, that we are children of the king, right? That we were designed by God. We were created in his image, that it's possible for people to have the silly view of the fact that this thing that's around us just happened by chance, that we're a result of the primordial soup that just happened to be in the right way to create life. I, I look at this and I see in the midst of this that God looks at his creation and he looks at those who would find a naturalistic understanding of creation, ignoring the God who created it. And he looks at it and he says, that's kind of silly. You know, the solution to the world's problem around us is that the gospel and the God who has called us to boldly share it with others, that that gospel is something that he's given us the privilege to share, even with those who have rejected it. So God has given us this privilege to represent his loving kindness to a world that at times says that it sounds foolish. And I, I want to be careful here. I don't want to set up a dichotomy for us that's false where we talk about us versus them. I actually want to say before I accepted Christ, there were things about the gospel that did not measure up for me, did not add, I don't understand, it doesn't make sense in fact, the, the way that we often think in our society is, is that we, we can earn our way into heaven. That, that there's this divine chalkboard, this, this chalkboard that's mysterious, that we do something good, we chalk you know, a mark on the good side, we do a bunch of good things, and we add the good, and then we do something bad, wrong, get pulled over by the police officer, we blend someone's cell phone, and we mark this down as a bad, that's funny, you guys, you guys are supposed to laugh, are you guys? So, so, so you mark this off on the other side, and then when we get to heaven someday, God going to look at it and he's going to measure and weigh. And you guys understand that that's just a worldly way of approaching things. You know, I started this morning talking about the, the tip that was $17,000. It, it doesn't add up, right? It doesn't, it's not, it's not, it's imbalanced. And the gospel isn't based on us earning our way to heaven, but instead it's based upon the fact that God loved you so much that he chose to send his son to die on behalf of your sins. So one negative mark, one sin, requires a perfect sacrifice. So the truth of the gospel is one that some might look like, look at, and they might say it's foolish. The world's way of thinking, unfortunately, the best attempts at the world's way of thinking to try to solve the world's biggest problems, it, it falls short. It doesn't measure up. It doesn't meet those challenges. I want you to think of some of the world's statements about the world that we live in. You can have it all. You can taste it all. You can study it all. 
You can experience it all. You can figure it all out. I want you to remember in Corinth where this was written. This was kind of intellectualism ground zero. Socrates, Aristotle, Plato, philosophers and individuals that wrestled with logic and truth and Sophia, wisdom, how you sort the ideas of the world out. And yet they fell so short. I, I think in that culture too, we need to remember that that archaeology tells us there was a lot of gladiator games, Olympic, there were things that were happening that were about competition. And, and in a way, in that society, you, you could solve your problems by being cleverer than others, by working harder than others. Isn't that kind of how we feel sometimes, right? If I just try harder, I'm going to be able to solve my circumstances. I can outwit, outlast, outplay. Sounds, sounds familiar, doesn't it? So, so those were the rules. You can have it all. You can taste it all. You can study it all. You can experience it all. You can figure it all out. You can work harder than anyone else. But I'll just tell you, that God's word reminds us, the Apostle Paul reminds us that the wisdom of the world has its limitations. It says this in verse 20, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe or the author? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly that we are preaching to save those who believe. So the Apostle Paul is giving credit where credit is due. The gospel is not about how great of a deliverer he is of the message. The gospel is not how clever we give the message of the gospel to other people. Instead, it is an exaltation of his authority than the mighty work of the Lord. Verse 22 says this, for the Jews demand signs. and the Greeks, they seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles. They, they look at this humble message of a Messiah that died on the cross and they say, how could we follow him? They look at the, the symbolism of the cross and it's important for you and I to remember that in the ancient days, it was repellent to talk about the cross. It'd be like if you wear a cross around your neck, it'd be like wearing a guillotine around your neck, right? That, that, that the celebration of the work of Christ, it just logically didn't make sense to those who were receiving this message from the beginning. That, that this message was one where for them, they saw it as a stumbling block and a folly. Verse 24, but to those who are called, and I believe this is a reference to those who are going to become Christ followers, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. In other words, we're on the winning team. We, we understand the rest of the story. It might not measure up or add up, but, but what we recognize is the world's approach to understanding falls far short of understanding the kind of wisdom that God desires for his people. People have always been searching for truth. They've been searching for life, for God. For, for ways to understand him. And here, what the Apostle Paul says, trying to do it through signs, trying to do it through your own understanding, it's going to fall far short. So I'll just remind you, the world's way of thinking does not solve the world's greatest problem. It's interesting to think about this in our, our ability to understand the mysteries of God. I like the way John Calvin puts it. It's kind of harsh, actually, but he says this, Man with all his shrewdness is as stupid about understanding by himself the mysteries of God 
as an ass is incapable of understanding musical harmony. <laughs> That's profound, huh? You understand what he's saying is, is we, we want to understand God. The world wants to understand God, but without the revealed truth of God's word, without messengers that understand the truth, without the clarity of the gospel, what people are doing is they're just stuck in a cycle. Let me go back to these. They believe you can have it all, but then we recognize you can have it all and you can still lack. You can taste it all and still be hungry. You can study it all and still lack knowledge. Life has taught us that you can experience it all and still be missing out. You can figure it all out and still be wrong, right? You can understand but still be confused. You can try harder than anyone else and you can still lose. This leaves the world longing, I believe, for something more. And when that, we talk about that longing for something more, I just want to make sure that it's really clear. The, the thing they struggled with in the early church time period in Corinth at this time is just the, the whole recognition or emphasis on the cross of Christ just didn't make any sense to them. I appreciate how D.A. Carson puts it. This would be, um, this would be like, um, what would you think of if you came to work uh, tomorrow and you saw a, a woman wearing earrings stamped with an image of the mushroom cloud of the atomic bomb that was dropped over Hiroshima? Or what would you think of a church building adorned with a fresco of the mass graves of Auschwitz? The same sort of shocking horror was associated with the cross and the crucifixion in the first century. It just didn't make sense. Why are you celebrating a failed escape, a lost court case, an innocent man who dies as a criminal, a fallen leader? Those are all a, a view of the, the work of the cross that you stand back and say, how can you follow him? But you guys, you know what's great? Is that we recognize that he lives still, Right. We recognize that through his death, he had victory over death. And so they're looking at one chapter of the story and they're missing the best part, right? That they're only seeing the bad news of the gospel, the need for the atonement, but they're missing out in their foolishness the offer of the cross, the, that it offers life and salvation and victory over death and an atonement for sin that is incredible. But I, but I think we need to be honest. We've always been people who want to find an excuse to believe the way that we want to believe, to live the way that we want to live. And it happens today. It happens all around us that there's people who want to rationalize and justify their belief. And and in our day and age, there's a lot of explanations for that. I think there's some that would say that the gospel is irrelevant, that Christians are flawed, that their messengers are flawed, that it's too arrogant to say that there's one way to Christ, the, the teachings in Scripture of exclusivity, or the teachings of Scripture at all. How can we trust an ancient book? The people have called religion and Christianity the opiate of the masses. In other words, a tool to control people. Science has helped us outgrow it. These are all lies that are a part of our culture. And let me just give you an example of, of, of the way Christians are portrayed today. It's hard to see the next slide, but these are just a few of the portrayals of you and I in the world that's around us. We could probably add hundreds of other images of people who are, um, are judgmental, misunderstood, are, are um, unhealthy, are people who mock the truths of Christianity, and they're used to describe those of us who call ourselves Christ followers. Now, let's, let's, let's make sure that we're applying this truth today. I know that for many of us today, we don't want to be associated with any of those portrayals of what a Christ follower is, right? 
So, so when we look at someone, the coworker that's across the room or the family member that we have lunch with and we go, man, I want to express the truth of the gospel to them. I don't want to come across as somebody who's foolish, right? I, I don't want to come across as somebody who's a hypocrite or that doesn't under, but, but what the apostle Paul is going to say to us is it's okay for them to misunderstand who we are because the message of the gospel is what they need. So, so it's okay for them to misunderstand who we are and to portray us as confused and wrong and misunderstood. But at the end of the day, it doesn't give us the excuse to not participate in the ability to express the truth of the gospel. So as a church, what they were doing is that they recognized that there were ugly portrayals of Christ, misunderstandings, confusions surrounding Christ. And so what they chose to do was to stop declaring the message of hope. And I, I think of this, and I, I recognize that, that, you know, the gospel is beautiful, right? That, that even though they say it was a failed escape, that Christ represented a failed escape, that it ultimately led to your and my hope. This lost court case resulted in victory. An innocent man dies as a criminal, and it leads to the hope of true life. The fallen leader continues to be followed generations afterwards because he is our living God, right? And so when we read this, understanding this truth, as Paul looks at this, that that, that he, he's going to emphasize the beauty and power of the gospel, that it's not about the packaging that it comes in. It's not how clever the deliverer is. It's not how winsome we are when we share the truth of the gospel, but instead it's the gospel that is the good news, the power of God unto salvation. I, I like the way Gordon Fee puts this. He scolds us a little bit when he talks about those of us who want to try to improve upon the gospel. He says this, we cannot abide the scandal of God's doing things his way without our help and to do it by means of such weakness and folly. That's the words of 1 Corinthians. But we have often succeeded in blunting the scandal by symbol or creed or propositions. God will not be so easily tamed and freed from its shackles, the preaching of the cross alone. It is the cross of alone that has the power to set people free. So, so if we confuse the messenger with the message, we misunderstand how powerful the message is. So, so we get to our purpose, second point this morning. Your and my purpose is to help others discover their true purpose. The Apostle Paul was a master at that. He was bold. He was willing to do this. And he's saying to the church in Corinth, stop hiding your faith. Stop ignoring it. Stop acting as if you're not Christ followers. In, in fact, he challenges them to do this in verse 26. So consider your calling. Uh, that word is a fancy word. I think we understand it in our own language that it's our God-given purpose. Consider your purpose. Why, why didn't God, when we became Christ followers, just beam us up? right? Can you imagine how cool that would be? You know, the moment that you pray to accept Christ, you're in a church service, and then boom, you're up in heaven with him. Wouldn't that be great? Well, well God has decided, because he's slow to anger, abounding in love, to leave you and I here to be ambassadors for the sake of the gospel. So when he says to us, to live as Christ and to die as gain, he is saying, look forward to your graduation. Anticipate it. It's awesome. Someday you're going to get to be physically restored and be in the presence of the God of the universe. But while I tarry, your mission is to represent the love of Christ to a world that desperately needs it. He says, brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were no of noble birth. 
And, and I like this understanding that some of them were. Some of them were, were people who had position and authority and others were people that the gospel changed their life. Sounds like us a little bit here. That, that it's not about who we were, but it's about who he is. And it says, but God chose what is foolish in the world according to their rules and standards to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And you know, Paul's talking about himself there. He's saying, you know what? I, I am a, just a utensil in the hands of God. You know some of the utensils, just in the book of, of Judges, um, God uses all kinds of utensils. He uses a stick for oxes. He uses a tent stake, Gideon's trumpets and pitchers and lamps. He uses the jawbone of a donkey, a millstone. You know, God, God can use a lot of things. He even uses a donkey to be his messenger at one point. You know, God's ways um, of communicating his loving kindness and his will are sometimes way beyond our expectations. And, but I think that for some of us, if we're really transparent, we, we think that God's way of communicating his message, we think often of guys like Billy Graham, right? That have a huge audience that are given the gift of evangelism or guys like, like Tim Tebow who, you know, you picture him with his John 3.16 written under his eyes and he's, he's got a, this public declaration of the gospel. I want you to think about your own life, your own story. I, I can think my own. That, that Does God use people like this? Of course he does. But, but does God often use individuals like you and I that don't look like, that don't have that audience, don't have the same experience, but instead what he chooses to do, well, let's look at what Paul says. He, he, he chose, chose to do this in verse 28. It says, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us. This is great. This is our grocery list of what we get to experience as Christ followers who became for us God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that it is written, let him who boasts or gives glory or honor, let him boast in the Lord. So, so here we know that Paul was a guy who had an education, that Paul had been trained as a religious Jewish man and he was a scholar. He was exposed to truth at a young age. He had position and authority and influence. And yet, through the gospel, he was humbled, even though he was fighting for the other team at one time in history. Now, we find himself declaring the mysterious truth of the gospel as a Christ follower, and he just recognizes, it's not about me. It's about the Lord. I don't boast in myself, but I boast in the Lord. So, brothers and sisters, I celebrate. the fact I'm fired up about this, that the thing that you and I can boast about is that we have found victory. We have wisdom from God. We have his righteousness. We're clothed literally in the righteousness of Christ. We experience sanctification. We are redeemed. He is in the renovation business. He's, he's restoring his individuals that he loves through his process of sanctification. And then Paul humbly says this in chapter 2, verse 1. And when I came to you, brothers... I did not come to you proclaiming to you the testimony, as some translations translate this, the mystery, which is fascinating to me. I didn't come to you proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or Sophia wisdom, this, these ideas that were so common in the Greek culture that they were in. But instead, I decided to know nothing among you 
That's a fascinating phrase. He was a trained man, an educated man. He knew how to speak publicly, obviously, for I decided to know nothing among you except Christ Jesus and in him crucified. Brothers and sisters, in Christ we found our purpose. It is to glorify the one who's glorified us. It's to obey even when we don't fully understand. It's to shamelessly share the reason for our hope. And Paul modeled this faithfully. He says this in verse 3. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not plausible words of wisdom, in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of God's dunamis power, so that you, your faith, might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. He's connecting this to where he started the book of Corinthians. You're not of Paul or of Apollos, of anything lesser than the message of the Lord Jesus Christ. You are of Christ. You get that confused and you open yourself up to a lot of suffering and pain. But if you keep Christ at the focal point of everything that you're doing, what we get to do, and I love this part of my privilege as a Christ follower today, is that I can offer others the counterintuitive hope of the gospel. This gospel has redemptive power. It's sufficient on its own without our help. You know, remember the story of Matthew 13, the parable of the soils? The farmer goes out to sow a seed and, and the recipients of that, they receive it in different ways. A sidewalk, rocky soil, thorns. One produces a crop 30, 60, or 100 times what's sown. What I love about that story, I bring it up often, is that it wasn't about how clever the farmer was, how much miracle grow he used, how, how he planted the seeds perfectly in the right time of year, but instead the emphasis was on the fact that the message, the seed of the gospel remained powerful and effective. So it was with weakness and in fear, much trembling in my speech that I offered this. And so that your faith not, might not rest in the wisdom of men, he says in verse five, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. I want to remind you of a few truths as we attempt to apply this. Paul clarifies that this is a personal volitional choice for us. Every one of us has found ourselves stuck in a pickle in our life that we're not quite sure how to resolve it in our own strength. And the Lord has reminded us for the greatest challenge in our life that he sent his son to seek and to save that which was lost. I'll remind you, church, this morning that, that according to the apostle Paul's teaching here that salvation is not inherited. This is very important for us. Some of us are parents, grandchildren. We have grandchildren. We have children of our own, and we strive to have them understand our faith. They don't just get it because of the fact that we are Christ followers, but they need to be exposed to the simple, powerful truth of the Word of God. I will remind you that living out your purpose is not about what you lack, but about what God abundantly provides. So the gospel is sufficient. The gospel has redemptive power. I also remind you this passage hints at something we'll study more, and that is God's elective power, his drawing people unto himself. And as you read that divine mystery, the apostle Paul gives us no excuse to not share the gospel because of God's mighty hand that draws people to himself. You know, brothers and sisters, finding our true purpose means that we find ourselves becoming, at times, a fool for Christ. 
that, that, that we find ourselves allowing other people's perception of us to fade away a little bit. Maybe, maybe they think lesser of us. Maybe they misunderstand what we're trying to say. Maybe it sounds like foolishness to them. But one thing, this is very convicting to me, and I want to share this with you, is that one thing that I found in my own life is that I often have kind of a scouting report on who I think will receive the message of the gospel. I, I kind of run through my checklist of, oh yeah, I think that that person may receive the message of the gospel. They seem like they're close. They, they, they look like, but, but I'll just remind you, this, this whole passage of scripture was written by a guy who was adamantly, publicly opposing the message of the gospel. In fact, if you had your checklist, Paul would not have measured up for somebody who you thought could ever become a Christ follower. I don't know your neighbors. I don't know your coworkers. I don't know your mom and dad. I don't know your kids, but I'm guessing for some of us, we prejudge their ability to receive or not receive the message of the gospel. And here, I think we misunderstand that it's never about our ability to pick and choose who's going to receive it, right? It's never about our capacity to communicate it in a perfect way. The simplicity and beauty of the gospel reminds us of the fact that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. That God demonstrated his own love for us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And that simple message of the gospel is one that's free to all. And for some, when they first initially hear it, like some of you, it might sound a little foolish. It might require some unpacking. It might require questions that have yet to be answered. And I look back on my own life of the 30 plus years that I've been a Christ follower. And I, I had some big questions when I first received the gospel. And what's beautiful about it is that God continues to reveal himself to me in spirit and in truth. And so, so today, if you're standing here and you're saying, I am unwilling to be a fool for the gospel. Let me just challenge you. Paul's message to the church in Corinth was to say, stop it. Stop being ashamed of the gospel. Stop ignoring. Stop hiding. Stop acting as if your job, your, your reputation, your experience, your relationships are more important than the thing it is that God has asked us to do. That that my purpose and your purpose as we wrestle with finding our purpose is actually to help them to discover theirs. So as we are salt and light in a dark world, as we recognize that God chose to allow us to stay in this pickle of life down here where we have struggles and challenges and discouragements and frustrations, that God has allowed us the privilege to represent the very indwelling love of the Lord Jesus Christ what a privilege. And as we think about the way that Paul is challenging this church, some of them were acting like they were ashamed of it. May that never be said of you and I, right? May that ever be said of you and I, especially those of us who've experienced and tasted the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. So you ready to become a fool for Christ? Are you ready to recognize that that's our most precious opportunity that he's given us? And in, and in the way that it was described, I think, to us beautifully, he must increase, we must decrease, right? Father God, we love you, and I thank you for your word. And as we close our service out, declaring your praises, I, I thank you so much for our church family. I thank you for the, the love that I see when the Apostle Paul wrote these words. I think he loved that church in Corinth. I think he knew them. He cared about them. He desired to see them thrive and 
He also knew in his own story that he had gone from being on the wrong side of the message of hope to being an ambassador for hope. And he wants that for all of us. And I pray even centuries later, Lord, that we allow ourselves to recognize that there's all kinds of excuses available for people to try to hide from the gospel, but it never stops being (coughs) truth. We love you. We thank you for this morning. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.